Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. This is the Built in California show where we're going to be shining a light on some founders and startups that are doing some amazing things to not only uh, from a business perspective, but also from a world perspective. So with me on the line is none other than the man, the legend, James Boscovic. How are you? Uh, welcome to the show, bud. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, always glad to be here. No, that's cool. So why don't you kick us off always ask our guests for the elevator pitch. You guys will always sell yourselves better than I will. Uh, but uh, give us the elevator pitch uh, about you, your background, um, and then we'll get into all things bank loop. <laughs> I hate pitching. What are we talking about? We don't do that. <laughs> um, exactly. No, you know, I think uh, my passion's always been for product. I uh, fell in love with a young age of 17 and um, – not just um, you know how great product is created, but I think I fell in love with solving problems at a human elemental level. So that um, you know, I think you can you can get up every day with a oh I can make a difference, or you can get up and do something small in some way that actually has it brings change in the world in some way, for, for hopefully for the better. Mm-hmm. So, um, walk us through, uh, you know, the, the genesis of Bankly, because obviously you built a, a number of companies before. Um, so why Bankly? What, how did this come about? So for over a decade before I founded this company, I had been tracking a lot of the metrics with, um, the market. Um, previously, I, I had an agency we advised a lot of large companies on GTM ideation through GTM. So I was very privileged to be aware of kind of in-depth metrics companies and governments as well. Um, we're, we're, we're looking at and potentially causing a problem, and many of those they would might refer to as the fiscal cliff or um, other other terms. Um, across the space where essentially their, their profits are shrinking and costs are going up and they're worried that there's a, a, there's an end where things kind of fall off and we have a, we have a bit of a reset in a variety of ways. So, you know, paying attention to that and really reverse engineering back to the foundational elements of what has the, what, which elements of the problem have the greatest impact you want to say what are the greatest kind of common denominators and then what are the simple factors within those that we could look at solving that and really i after looking at it across all of that spectrum i i settled that one of the oldest problems since caveman days if you believe cavemen existed but going back for as long as we know the human race has been here is we've struggled with what to do with the things we don't want anymore when we're done using them, whether it was bones or things we tried burying them. We tried throwing it out in the sea and we just didn't, we didn't want to get eaten. (laughs) We didn't want the smell near us. And uh, we're still struggling with that today. Right. So let's talk about some specifics here because you, you shared with me some interesting data points. One of those is that as a society, we're consuming 150% of the world's resources every year. So obviously this begs the question then, well, you know, this is a a sustainability problem, Uh, but walk us through from your perspective, uh, you know, around like how big is this problem actually uh, for, you know, all of us? 
Well, I think when we look at it, so basic math says if you're consuming something at 150%, so 50% more than you have, or the earth can generate, well, we're eventually going to run out. Basic math says that. Um, and the, so, but this is obviously a very big supply, right? So we have reserves. So we're not just running out in one year. This is something that we creep towards over a very long time. And I think a lot of us try to ignore that problem or we don't want to, because it's very big and it's hard to think about. Um, And I think, so when we look at that consumption level, what happens is, and this is where a lot of when I just talked about fiscal cliffs is when we are consuming at that rate and goods are becoming harder and more rare to get those costs of those goods go higher and higher and higher. And eventually we get to a point where an increasing percentage of the population can't afford those goods or energy or food and things just economic structures start crumbling. And we've seen early signs of that, um, you know, and that's when we see, when we see economically how we're making less today than we did 20 years ago, this is where that problem really came to the forefront of how we can use artificial intelligence to lower that cost, pull commodities profitably out of that waste stream so that we can bring down that percentage from 150% to at least hopefully within, you know, three years, five years, we can get that below hundred percent at least. So we can stop that curve going and then progressively move forward from there. Okay. Fantastic. Um, so I'm going to bring up your website for everyone. So explain what bank loop actually does because you guys are, it's, it's quite interesting what you guys are doing from my perspective, but what exactly is is it that you're doing? Because I know it's a product that you guys have uh, developed, but walk us through in your own words, like what is it exactly that you guys do? So for governments, waste management companies and corporates, we are, are we have a very core data set um, that we gather. Um, and we, we do that by putting a, a small smart node and it can go into any garbage truck or compactor today, recycling truck. And essentially we get a representative data sample at this point in time with the current technology which is in in the field that allow customers or people to understand governments and to understand the value where the higher value loads are so that they can understand that those are profitable loads to sort and recycle Um, and so with that core data set is the time date location where that uh, recycling or uh, Items, waste items were collected. It is the category, so it's metal, aluminum, clear glass, colored glass, green glass, etc. The type, cereal box, etc. And then down to brand and item beyond that. Um, so we, we get a very complete data set of how, when, where everything is consumed. Right. So essentially, you're like the data analytics engine for landfills. Exactly. So you can track everything from like where the product was issued to like the journey that it went on all the way through to the actual uh, landfill state. Um, and when you have that data, not only I'm assuming here, you, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but when you have this kind of data, you've got a private sector play and then you've got a public sector play too. Um, is that correct? Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, so um, many, many, this is divvied up. So sometimes it's private companies that handle waste. Sometimes it's government that handles waste. For the most part, especially for residential, it's your tax dollars paying for it um, versus businesses, their business, their, their business cost. Um, and that's obviously a, a fairly large cost for both parties. Um, so the big thing is here that we divert that waste as much as possible profitably from landfill and then allow our clients to adopt technologies that can sort that and we can, we're looking within three years really to be able to, because our AI is now fast enough at 37 millionths of a second, divert all that waste, everything you throw away from landfill, essentially. There, the technology is available, is just how quickly can it be scaled into, into markets that um, would provide the produce the most amount of waste, if you'd like to say recycling. Um, and then I think on the back end of that, the, the data, whether it's for, whether it's a company understanding how their products are being consumed, stores knowing what might go on the grocery list in that postcode or zip code so they can stock the right amount. So 30%, they don't have to overstock. So 30% of that food's being thrown out before it's even sold to you. Like there's some really big areas that this data can really have a positive effect on the economy and companies' profits and ability to pay fair wages and kind of return some of that profitability and hopefully return some of our middle class. James, is America running out of landfill sites? I mean, in, I know it in South Africa, we, we're actually running out of space to put garbage. Um, how bad is this problem? I mean, if we talk about like where you're putting waste, if we're consuming 150% of our resources every year, um, and more and more and more of it is going into landfills, which, by the way, is quite interesting. I've probably I've had uh, two other founders or startups I've spoken to also focusing on either the elimination of the of waste. So Steve Delson's building infrastructure to do that. Um, yeah. There's another um, interesting stats I can share, which you probably know already, but. Uh, in e-commerce, the amount like if you buy something from Amazon and then you uh, you return it, if the retailer cannot do anything with that, it goes straight to landfill. So there's like like million tens of millions of uh, like a crazy number of like products which are going direct to landfill because they were just returned from a consumer to the retailer. Yeah, that that well, I think the reality is. I don't if anybody listening to this has ever had a landfill tray placed to them and they saw their community's reaction. It's not that there isn't physical, well, there's really three elements, right? It's not that there isn't physical locations, is no one wants one near them. <laughs> second, second, hey, why are we spending, 
U.S. federal government, $200 billion plus state, city, government spend, a, give or take a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. to go and bury hundreds of billions of dollars worth of valuable commodities in the ground that are preventing essentially the economic successes in future by doing that. So those are really the three elements that, yes, no one wants one near them, but the reality is technology is now at the point where we can drive the future, where we can profitably um, solve the problem with economic and environmental sustainability. Mm -hmm. So um, what is a smart garbage truck? Like, what does that mean? It seems like there's like everything's becoming smart these days. I never thought I would see or hear about a smart garbage truck. <laughs> so I know it's something that you guys have actually built. Um, so uh, so what exactly is a smart garbage truck and, and what problem does that solve? So, so, so um, our one of our suppliers supplies us the brain. We're the AI. Um, we are we are the, the what takes all the data from the sensors that are available off the shelf, and um, then our suppliers, like garbage truck manufacturers, they've already been testing a lot of these technologies for years, and a lot of great startups and other companies have been building sorting plants. The biggest barrier was the speed of the AI and the speed of the sensors to be able to sort that on location which is the lowest cost point to sort, but was the highest barrier because the AI just couldn't get make the decision fast enough. So the truck would be sitting there for a very long time, making things very slow. So it wasn't feasible. Um, so I think that's when we get down to, so we specialize in the, the software support of making all of the physical things that amazing companies have built work in a way that's actually functional in the real world. Um, so we, the AI, the firmware, the robotics controls, um, all the way through to the data that's pulled out on the back end and what that means for governments and corporates in an actionable way, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, so yeah. like that is, uh, we're, we're just here to drive that. And then our finance partners, because of the value proposition that those commodities and that data provides collectively, they're able to finance it uh, very cost-effectively. Um, so it doesn't have to be a cop cast. And so there's no scaling issues because the value proposition far outweighs the cost of acquiring the equipment and deploying it. Right. So uh, obviously there's a lot of talk about carbon offsets. So um, uh, John Oliver did a segment on that uh, around carbon offsets. Um, and I'd love to get your views because from what, you, what you're saying, my, my understanding is, is that um, your technology could also help to understand things like carbon offsets and the metrics for ESGs and things like that. Um, so two things. One, what are your views on carbon offsets? Where is this kind of going wrong? And how do you, how do you hope to um, you know, make the idea of carbon offsets and ESGs uh, more achievable, not only for the private sector, and, but also the public sector through your technology? So I, I think... I'm going to make make some enemies by saying this. Um, The reality is the Wild West, and there's many tiers of carbon credits, many categories of current carbon credits that are in the market that are wild conjecture at best. They are hypothetical estimations of what carbon reduction might be. There is some ones that are calculated on hard. Hey, we took this gasoline vehicle, and now it's electric. This was X carbon. This is less carbon, there's the difference, right? We have we have a hard metric. But when you're trying to cap- calculate, let's say you, you reduce your packaging, right? You, you use 50% less packaging in your product. So 
that is, let's say, a carbon reduction to a certain, it has an ESG driver, you've made some initiatives, or you're utilizing compostable material over that, you can put some calculation around that. But the metrics of how that actually realizes from, so you, you so a company will know where their things that they make the products from, they know where they ship them to, they know where they sell them. They don't know the human behavior on the other end. So this is when I say it's wild conjecture, is there is some carbon that can be calculated in the reduction on the front end. But this backside of what happens after consumers consumed it is like a black hole of data. We can do studies. By the time the studies are done, it's months. The data is outdated. And so having real-time data, understanding exactly when those items are consumed and where the commodities go and what was the behavior around the consumption on metadata, not person by person, just to preface that. This is like collectively, it's inanimately just without a person's information attached to it. You know, um, so like when we look at the market, we can then understand, okay, X product has X result and now X commodities are back. So there's a full closed loop of data. Um, so whether you're the marketing department, whether you're the manufacturing department, whether you're the shipping department that makes sure things get places, whether you're acquiring the, the commodities to make your products, this data is very valuable for decision-making across all levels of the company. Um, so that's what's really exciting for kind of the future of business from my perspective. If you know all of this, I mean, who's going to change consumer behavior? I mean, who, whose responsibility is that? I mean, even if you showed them some, like a, I don't know, like a retailer, like a beautiful dashboard that goes, hey, check it out. This is like what's happening around behavior. Like who, whose responsibility is it to actually change consumer behavior so that it moves into a more sustainable, uh, you know, outcome for everyone? Well, I, I think behavior is something that we can only change for ourselves. Um, it's, it's always an individual choice. We live in a free world. Um, that's also why we can't force people to sort every bin correctly or do the right thing. And this is why, you know, for the first time we can say AI can actually do this. This is something it can do a job that nobody ever wanted to do or could figure out how to do properly. And we can solve one of the greatest costs to our environment and economy um, with this um, and, and and scale this into the market alongside without people. It's still a garbage truck going down the road. It's still trucks taking goods from places to places, commodities, metals, aluminums, glass from place to place. But it's having instead of pulling that from the ground again, we can lower those costs and return profitability and save the environment. But on the back end of that, that data, when your bin gets emptied, to give that opportunity to say, hey, I would like to get paid for doing it right, it enables that opportunity as well. That is something which you're going to hear in upcoming in about six to nine months of Bankloop announcing a product. We're going to be rolling an app alongside of our government and waste management customers so that when your bins are picked up that you can get kudos and cash for it um if you, if you choose to be a part of that um so that that's i think quite exciting um that we can reward people for in a with positive reinforcement instead of government slapping fines down to try to force behavioral correction
Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, conjecture, I guess, uh, around AI. I mean, I've, I've just been really privileged over the last couple of weeks to be talking to some really hardcore AI founders. Like they come straight out of MIT and they're building like rocket scientist stuff, you know. Um, and <laughs> uh, And what is fascinating from my privileged position is that like I would say, if I've picked the last 10 founders I've spoken to, I would say that probably around 70 or 80% are using AI in some form uh, mm-hmm. in their in their platform, which is which is incredible. The uh, the conjecture piece for me um, is that uh, you know, and this was a discussion I actually had with uh, Alex Babin. He he runs uh, an AI startup in uh, Palo Alto, uh, but they do like automation for enterprise manufacturing and stuff. And he was like, yo, like people don't get it. Like they think that, you know, AI is going to come and steal all their jobs. Um, And so that's the conjecture piece. Meanwhile, you've got these deep, deep tech founders and yourself included um, who are truly like in changing the world. And you, I'm sure you'll agree with me that like technology is like the greatest enabler of the industrial age, like period. Um, and so you've got this one camp, which is like, oh, AI is going to come. It's going to ruin everything. But then you've got people on the ground on the other camp that people that I speak to, such as yourself, and they're like doing incredible things with AI, like really like amazing, like holy shit. Like I can't even begin to explain. Um, uh, I've got other guys coming on the show to come, you know, talk about it better than I could ever do. Um, but, um, but what my question to you, uh, James, is: Are we is are, is that man in the street right to be scared about AI? I think, of course, I think anything that's great and powerful can always be used for dubious means. And I think as founders in it, of course, it is important for us to look out um, for these factors. I think in an application like we are, it's not one where man has an interest in I mean, if anything we go out of our way to not think about it and not not deal with it um so it's it's one where it's it's probably more welcome than others i think when we look at this i think for the people that are thinking about ai beyond obviously sorting their rubbish which most people are quite excited they don't have to touch their rubbish it's sorted um that that so what this is the way I look at it. So what this would this is enabling is so when AI sorts these commodities out, captures these metals, aluminums, plastics, there's also artificial intelligence, which is doing quality control, which is running machines. And so we are coming into an era where the mom and pop factories can come back profitably within the construct of the digital age. So instead of being more centralized, we can decentralize because AI can have 300 factories dispersed around local locations, maintain exact quality control, make sure the commodities get to the right places and the families can earn a fair wage because these locations are on their property, in their community. There is still jobs around this. AI is not running everything. I just think that the, when, because when we look at kind of the third wave of the third into industrial revolution that um, when we look at how AI integrates into this, it empowers a lot to happen um, that we can have that middle class come back, that family life come back where everybody's not working three jobs just to survive that people, members of the family can choose to like spend time with the kids or like pursue arts and crafts or whatever things they want because 
there it's it's more community based and also things don't have to travel as far to be consumed um so i think empowering goods to be captured locally and then put back into the closed loop locally also then enables that manufacturing and other elements that ai is driving for the future to scale as well mm-hmm. so i mean i'd love you to talk about your experience working with ai about what you've learned because um you know like it seems to me like the next 10,000 if, if we and I drew a line in the sand today and we fast forward a year from now let's say that there were 10 in fact it's actually a good number <laughs> I'll tell you why because there's like in America in the last 12 months there's a little over 12,000 startups that have raised money mm-hmm. from like seed through to series f <laughs> um and so that's in one year, right? So you, if, if let's just say that in the next year you have another 10,000 say, and if we also assume that 70 to 80%, 7,000 or 8,000 of these startups are going to have some kind of AI components. And let's say that half of them have never done AI before. So let's just say there's three and a half thousand founders in the next year that you are going to advise. <laughs> what is your advice to them? Uh, about working with AI. Another way to uh, rephrase James is, what have you learned as a founder working with AI? What would you suggest to other founders working with AI to look out for in the future? I I think my advice is always going to be the same, is understand the metrics of every area, of every facet of the market that connects to anything to the problem you're solving. Understand that problem so intimately that when you go to construct your product, that you're not wasting months and years and millions or whatever, building something that only a very small part of it is actually usable and scalable by the time you get to something that's functional and beyond an ugly baby. Even Bankloop, which we're scaling quite quickly at this point. I still refer to as an ugly baby. I will probably refer to it even three and five years from now as some version of a child, which has so much to learn because it's foreverly iterative. Um, And I think the assumption that we have something that's cool and finished and we've hit a plateau is probably the greatest thing that we that we should always and i think it's when i see about 99% of founders have they have this idea that they're going to get here and they've made it their product is the shiznit <laughs> excuse my french at this level the reality is there's no such thing is is it relevant today is what you with the models you're training today the 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 product you're building today is it relevant today and is it are you able to is it a building block for what will be in the future and what others are building and innovating. So it's really important to understand the direction of technology and its value and how it's desired by the markets because people don't buy what they need. Engineers love building stuff that people need. People don't line up for that. That's literally what sits in drawers or never gets purchased and ends up in landfill. Um, People and, And if it's simple and beautiful for people to integrate into their lives, into their businesses, the higher the score it's going to have on those two points is what is going to bring true great product, even if it's a small little piece. If you look at, I'm focused across multi-billion dollars of sales on a core data set of six columns. That is 
as impacts to government and corporate and banking and every facet of almost every company that exists because of how it's constructed and where it comes from. Of course, I patented that very thoroughly. But that is essentially when you, when you, but I'm not saying that even that is iterative, right? Mm. And what that means tomorrow will be different today because of the evolution and of what the ecosystems of what they build. So I think it's always our duty as founders. I would say humble enough to not know anything, egotistical enough to believe we can do cool shit that makes a difference. Because as soon as we assume we know anything and we have achieved anything is the day that we start failing. And that investment of our time, money, investors, money, our teams is like gone. Even Bezos says that he goes, if we stop iterating and innovating and thinking and assuming like we thinking, if we start thinking that we know something is the day Amazon at the size it is could fail. And I'm sure if you asked anybody else in that you would you would classify like Elon or uh, Tim Cook or they would they would probably tell you the same thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a it's a good interesting uh, conversation point for me. That um, in that is it an advantage not to know enough? So if you let's stick with Elon because there's another question I'm gonna, I want to ask you about Tesla, but. <clears throat> So, like, he didn't know about rockets, right? Mm-hmm. He just knew that he wanted to, like, you know, make space like a thing, a private uh, sector opportunity that was previously excluded and, you know, make re- make a, make a rockets reusable. Like, he wasn't a rocket guy. So he didn't know, like, he may, obviously, probably knew more than the average dude, but he didn't know enough to go, this is exactly how we're going to do it, right? So... And the same thing one could say for Tesla, I would say even in my own uh, businesses like that, that, that scaled, it was like I didn't, I went into a sector like not knowing. And to use your point, it's like, well, it's, I, call, I don't call it ego, I call it like entrepreneur belief. It's like you go into a thing, it's like a belief that or a sector that you know nothing about, uh, but it's a belief so strong it, it overrides all like logic and and doubt and fear like you you know they would you just believe you're going to cross this chasm and change change the world and everyone's going to be like you know <laughs> skipping around the fire at night Fear insanity. Uh, yeah it's insanity man um but yet this is the but this is the thing that steve Jobs said is like the only people that change the world are the ones that are crazy enough to think that they can and do so um so the question james is uh like is it an is it an advantage maybe it's an unfair advantage to not know what the incumbents know in a space. I, I, I think that we go back to the principle. If you look at the process NASA runs, it's based on assuming that they know things, right? And so they have a very long process because every time they discover something new, they have to go back and revalidate all of their assumptions and determine which and one of any one of millions of variables are correct or incorrect, which is definitely needed on some level, even if you look where SpaceX is today. But I would put, I like, I'm obviously not going to put words in Elon's mouth here or anything like that. But if I would look at the philosophy, which they run with from my perspective is they still work with the assumption that they don't know anything. They get up every day and look for ways that they can blow apart 
all of their previous assumptions and find something new. Yes, they have to like work with the tools and what they've learned, but then they are looking for those breakthroughs constantly. And I think that's, um, you find a set of things that are working right now, but you don't assume that they will always work or they will work with that new breakthrough. You might get a new breakthrough in propulsion, right? Technology with that team. And all of a sudden, all of these other assumptions, you have to can those and start all over again, right? And when you can do that very quickly with agility, that is where you can take technology so much further because you don't, you're not holding on to the last 50 years of using spare parts from (laughs) spaceships from the 1950s and computers to like try to put stuff into space because that worked. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Dasa. I love you, but we all know that's why you, that's why you love Elon too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's a, it's such an interesting point this because like Elon talks about uh, first principles and it's funny because I spoke to another founder who has raised, I mean, like he's raised, I think, 12 million, 12.4 million or something like that. He's a first-time founder, hey? Raised 12 million. But where did he come from? He came from Tesla. So he was one of the engineers that was working on the self-driving car technology. So he's like a legit rocket scientist. He's German. He's coming on the show. But um, his company is called the Industrial Next. Okay, so here's the thing. So what he does and what his team do is they go into like manufacturing firms, right? But they're bringing a new point of view on production or manufacturing and supply chain. So what they do is they either develop technology like Tesla does or they aggregate technology sets to create a collective new technology set. And then what they do is they work with manufacturing firms to, to put this technology inside the old machine, the old way of doing things. So they're not like replacing, ripping out, like doing open heart surgery, but let's just say there's 727 steps. They may replace steps three to nine. You know what I mean? Like it's like a a handful of steps, not the whole thing. But here's the point. Is it better for like, if you think about it, there's no way that that the current manufacturing company, let's just say that's been around to your point for like 50 years, they just know that there's only ever been this way. Yeah. Right. It's only ever been fossil fuel cars. That's it. So if you have a new point of view and you don't, and you think it can be done better, entrepreneur believe, but you bring with you like not enough knowledge to reinforce the status quo. It doesn't make sense. So as long as you have like a vision and you have a curiosity to figure out, well, how could it be better? And you don't accept the current premise because this is the thing. I think a lot of people or startups are innovating to make the current status quo better. The, yeah. ki- the category kings, you are an example of this in the sense of like you're totally reimagining the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? Through technology, not knowing what you don't know, but you're figuring out and you're connecting all the dots with things like AI. Like a 50-year-old like, you know, landfill recycling company is just not going to be thinking like that. So my sense is, is that it's probably an advantage if you don't know enough, but you have a vision that's strong enough to pull you right in the direction that you need to go so that you can become the leader in the space or to make the kind of difference that you want to make. Yes. Yes. And no. Um, I, I think that, that, that is, is an advantage, um, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to execute on it and actually we can just like 
every, everybody has a dream, right? Everybody, every idea anybody has, there's millions of people that have thought of it. You might be one of the very few that have got out of bed and actually done something about it. And you're going to be, there's a 99.9% chance you're going to probably fail doing it once you get out of bed and try it. Statistically, that's <laughs> the way it stacks up. Um, so the reality is, is that 0.1% of the people that try or whatever, 0.5% of the people that try actually get to doing something. And the thing, this is where I think is set, so if you want to say, um, what is able to be executed on and what isn't is that when you're looking at, so, so let's take your manufacturing, for example, right? You look at what Bright Machines is doing and all they're really at the pushing it, pushing at the edge with Greg Rykow is, you know, really investing and advising and driving, being the former head of global manufacturing and what your friend is doing there, enabling the decentralized manufacturing future. Um, if we look at what the, how that is being thought about. It's not that we are, or even bank loop, it's still a garbage truck that goes down the road, right? We're not coming in and saying, oh my God, you've got to have a spaceship collecting garbage down the road and vacuuming it in and doing some kind of atomization, right? There may be that in a future in a hundred years or 200 years, who knows? But the reality is today, we have to be able to drive change that eliminates barriers and drives those exponentials um, without, in a way that's actually feasible and desired. So you, you, water goes downhill, your river's running downhill. You gotta find a way to insert yourself into that river at the fastest, widest point that you just get in there and you don't get your canoe overturned, essentially, right? And, it, and it's, yeah, it's gotta be an art, right? And you gotta understand, you gotta study the river. You gotta understand where the currents flow, where the rapids are and your tools to stay upright. And if you do get overturned, how to get back up. I think those are the best analogies. And that's like a founder's really journey is you've got to like, just understand you're not going to know. As soon as you, if you assume you know how that river is going to handle you, you're going to definitely, you're going to, you're going to be sinking pretty fast. So you just, you got to be able to go with it and understand how to work with it and innovate and make it as seamless and as smooth as possible, as quickly as possible. But that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I suppose you got to have a quite a, a, a non-associative uh, relationship with uh, failure, right? Or the fear of failure, I suppose. Um, what's been hard about building Bankleap? Like, what have you failed at? And uh, in other words, obviously, what you've done is hard. Building businesses, period, is hard. But everything. Yeah, everything. Okay, so what? What was the one? <laughs> So what was the one thing about everything that <laughs> that's in other words, in the journey of building bank leap, like what has been the one thing that's you gone like, you know what, like this is what I learned about myself or this is what I would do differently. I think other founders could benefit from. I think obviously this isn't my first rodeo. So I, I definitely, I, I'm in it for the journey, not the result. Um, of course, the the change that you're executing on is is very fun to do but it's the change i'm doing today and we're building towards tomorrow that's fun but the, i'll say the same thing tomorrow and the day after and the day after that so that just never changes um i think for for me it's when you're building something which can go global right which could deliver that on such an exponential basis the careful thought process 
and the never ending, even when you think you've, let's say you've got these idealistic principles that you're like, Hey, we're not going to know everything. Right. The reality is human nature. You're going to be, you're going to assume something you're going to like, you're going to want to think it's cool today. Right. Like it's just, we're, we're naturally want to do that. Um, It's innately in us. And I think that in your team is going to also naturally want to do that. Um, so it's definitely been a really good learning curve on how to lead in a way that inspires leadership in my team with the constructs that also keep those ethos in place and that we can reset each other and support each other and be collectively strong. And I think that was, that, that was, I think, probably one of the, you know, culture is always one of the toughest things to build for scale. Um, and it's, it's still, it's definitely still in work, but I'm really, really proud of the team of where we are at today. Um, and kind of where we've come through, there's obviously been like, oh, we had like fantasies of like every little trash can sorting itself. And, uh, there was, there was, there was, there was, there was like a bunch of like, really, uh, really, really fun digressions along the way that we learned a ton out of, right. But there, those elements of when we told ourselves that like this was actually possible, and then like realized there was a much better way to do it, <laughs> it blew it up a few times. Yeah, no, that was. Uh, I, I can tell you a few stories of elements of the product, but you know the market always told us the right path forward. Yeah. So let's do. Let's let's talk about that because when I first spoke to you, um, I said to you like, "What would you? I mean, you know, when you get when you get ready to scale, <clears throat> maybe we can come back to the culture thing." Um, but uh, you were saying to me um, that you'll never spend a cent on marketing, um, and I've met, I've spoken to a few founders uh, today. Well, every day, <laughs> they're all blurring now. It's like one day rolls into the next. There's another founder, uh, but. Um, uh, I've met a few that, <clears throat> excuse me, who are like, well, if you build it, they'll come, you know. And for like years, like I, I've, no, I've always subscribed to the idea, like, well, no, it, it, building a great, like I've built lots of things that never saw the light of day. I spent millions of products, built things, no one came, you know what I mean? Or like didn't, didn't get scale, had some early adoption, but otherwise, you know, blah blah. And then you were talking to me about Tesla, and you were like, yeah, like Tesla doesn't spend. Uh, like uh, spends a fraction of of you know its budget on advertising. They don't, quote unquote. They don't advertise at all. Yeah, compared to like the other manufacturers like Ford and Toyota, Honda, these guys. So yeah, try try over, what is it six billion less? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. So, um, but just unpack that f- for us yeah. for our audience because a lot of guys are building tech and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll be you know, we'll, you know if if we build a great product, like they'll come. So. Yes and no. Um, so I think you. So when I when I founded Bankloop before I even put idea on a napkin, I went and had a thousand focus groups across nineteen plus countries, and we've continued to sit down and go out there and talk to our customers to validate iteratively over the last three years. I think it's really important to include your customers in that journey if you are a startup founder. And obviously that you know doesn't mean everybody, um, but you've gotta be representative at least. Um, and if you make an assumption 
you, I think the biggest thing is, oh, wait a minute. I've, I've got all the demographics. I understand how this market works is constantly going and looking for that. But the biggest problem as well, and even myself, I found I was asking my customers the wrong questions. I was having the wrong conversation. And all of a sudden, one person one day says something and I'm like, holy shit, light bulb goes off. And all of a sudden my, my margins and I've got like two new verticals that with the exact same thing, I can relabel it and, <laughs> and we can increase our margins by 700% just because of what that one person said um, and what they valued, what they needed and how I thought about how the customer demanded it. And I think is when you, when you have customers that you build it with them, then they know that you value them. They already are bought in on the experience you provided in the creation of the product for them. And I think customers are the most priceless. And then when you also go through that journey, you understand how to articulate it in a very simple way. And in 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, 15 seconds, doesn't take long. When people get it and they can go and tell their friends in 15 seconds and 30 seconds, and it's exciting to people, it's viral, right? And that's what people, it's so overused. I hate, I hate the word. Um, but the reality is it spreads like wildfire. It, it gets out there and people are excited and they line up for it. And it, it takes a lot of hard work to create that. Um, it's relentless and tireless. And well, when you hear stories of certain individuals sleeping on factory floors to make that kind of thing happen, it, they were on that journey as well. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's not one that comes easily, but the greatest companies are built with that. So, uh, <clears throat> thank you. Richard Branson, uh, when he launched uh, a Pepsi, so I don't know if you know the story. Obviously, you know Richard, probably know him personally. But um, uh, uh, when he launched uh, Pepsi, he was like on a tank with a whole bunch of hot like ladies, uh, you know, driving a tank through Times Square. And it was like, rah, PR, like Richard Branson. Take, <laughs> we're going to kill Coca-Cola, rah, rah, you know. Um, and uh, and as we all know, like they, the max market share they took was like 5%. Mm. So I I look at that right, and then to your point around like they don't add Tesla doesn't advertise, but what do they do then? And for me, it's a, like it's the same thing Richard did, and he said like a PR story is more important than a front page ad. And with yeah. Elon and Tesla, like when the, when you launch the Roadster on a rocket and you put a Roadster into space and you broadcast that back down to the interwebs where everyone in the world <laughs> can can see how cool, like you know. The brand it, is and Elon is. It is customer engagement. Obviously, it is creating a story for people to talk about their brand and team. Their brand team does an incredible job. Um, and Elon is one of my favorite brand builders um, as far as like how just how humbly he articulates it and how genuinely he connects with the customer. I think that the story, so if you, there's a, some key elements to understand why he's successful let's say with Tesla, let's take Tesla for an example. Um, so I, everybody who's gone out there and 
tried to buy a car and had a salesperson pull whatever shenanigans and give them whatever bullshit. And they go to the next dealership and the same thing happens again. And there's a different story every time someone walks past and you hear them telling you a different story of the person in the next office over. And you're just like, it is one of the most, I mean, people have lost trust and faith in it. And they just kind of, if even when they do buy a car, the traditional way, it's, it's one where, they know they're getting bullshitted. <laughs> they know they're getting wool pulled over their eyes somewhere. And so if you think about the underlying sentiment, similar to like trash, everybody has this innate aversion to trash. There's an innate aversion to having to buy a car and go through that experience. Um, and I think when you create something that has a great story behind it, which is extraordinary, which is exciting, the speed, going to space there's you know i can be a part of the future there's a whole buy-in of a lifestyle and then he's like oh by the way you can just click apple pay on on your phone and, and get this and you know you're getting a fair price and no one's bullshitting you right so he made that just really simple and easy after creating a fun exciting story it was like what you know you're like watching a film every time you get on twitter or um you know, it's like, it's like clips of like something you're like just riveted um, because it connects and it connects with the audience in a way that's extraordinary. I, I have a Tesla. I drive it. I, I love how it drives me to work. Um, it becomes so efficient, you know, and it's, it's a lifestyle, right? Yeah. Loves it, $2 to my car. <laughs> yeah. If I can maybe add to that, I think the, the, you know, why these things work so well is because they make non-obvious connections to to people at scale. You know, I yeah. think there's, uh, you know, when you think about like, I've been thinking about this a lot because as you know, like I'm still also trying to figure out like, because I care about this paradigm of like building, starting, building and scaling and exiting a business and, and you know, helping entrepreneurs be successful at whatever that means for them. Um, and so like I've been thinking a lot about this problem and a lot of startups and how they actually go to market. So unless you have an incredible product that really does create a flywheel effect and network effects, and then you go scale, great, fantastic. You know, there's many companies like that, Airbnb, Uber, et cetera. For the 99.99% of everybody else, it's like LinkedIn, Facebook, email, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and, and that's like, for me, that that's like a web two paradigm that, you know, founders miss like it, you, you you can't like you're not gonna you're probably not gonna scale if you just think like that and then you look at like you know the great founders of our time elon musk uh you know richard branson these guys um you know um uh, mark benioff from salesforce you know like the guy uh, steve jobs like they uh, my sense is is like they went to market in a non-obvious way they weren't like well how can we how many emails can i send they were like we're going to create a huge story around this it's going to completely be non-obvious and it's going to get word of mouth going because that's what drives scale but i think it's it's all about the story even if you look at the video and we're iterating on our story all the time but we get buy-in from our target audience um, and we create, there's excitement and demand um, and a very long wait list of customers, um, which we're always talking about problems, right? <laughs> Struggling to figure out your, your ability to scale your scaling, fulfill all your wait list um, is always fun um, and do it well. Um, 
or try not to screw it up so badly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that's, um, I think, I think you're completely right on that. That's um, it's there. Those, those core elements have to be, have to, have to be, have to be there. Mm. James, let's wrap Mm -hmm. this up. I've got a big one, big question for you right at the end. Here we go. Why do you do what you do? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, I love the journey. I love the journey of getting up every day and actually doing something that hopefully will leave this world a better place. Um, You know, I, I see its impacts already. I think it's a great privilege to have uh, a sharp mind to be able to work with um, leaders um, to be able to uh, across, around the world um, of various kinds. Um, and I think that's an opportunity um, that few people have. And um, I, I, I really, I, I think for the most part, that love of when I fell in product at 17 um, and I've stayed with that ever since has never gone away. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's really, really cool to be able to get up and understand and see your customers um, realizing the, the fruits of those very small things that you've been able to do. And it's being, being that pebble that creates a wave is, um, I think it's a great privilege in life. Well, it's been a privilege having you on the show, buddy. It's uh, I look forward to uh, you know you guys hitting your two hundred million dollar ARR in the next year or two. Uh, but <laughs> then we can get you back we'll on. You back can scare and see if it happens. Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can tell me if uh, your flywheel product idea worked better than <laughs> than, than my <laughs> my ideas. But um, look, it's been a privilege, and I sincerely wish you uh, all the very best. I think you guys are doing some great work. So uh, thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure, my friend. Alrighty. Thanks, James. Cheers, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Ciao, ciao. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.